0: Welcome to the HTLL podcast. We are your co-hosts, Tino Muvuti, Technical Advisor for WASH.
1: And Emily Hirada, Technical Advisor for Health and Nutrition.
0: In our last episode, we had the privilege to speak with Dr. Peter Landless from the Health Ministries Department of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists about global disparities in vaccine access. Today, we're sticking in-house, discussing with fellow ADRA colleagues about the exciting topic of One Health to help guide us through this discussion, we have our very own Emily, who has been spearheading the One Health movement within ADRA, conducting webinars on One Health, facilitating roundtable discussions on One Health, and representing ADRA at global One Health conferences. Most recently, Emily has completed a secondary graduate degree in One Health. Congratulations, Emily. She will be helping us make sense of all of the discussions from our interviews today. But first of all, I'm going to ask her to introduce our topic for today. Emily, could you give our listeners a brief introduction to One Health?
1: Yes. Thank you, Tino. Uh, Absolutely. So, In a nutshell, One Health is an approach that links human health, animal health, and environment health all together as one package. So instead of three separate types of health, so human health, animal health, environment health, it's simply one health (laughs) because all three elements of health, the human, the animal, the environmental aspects, are very, very closely interlinked and interdependent. This approach is not only gaining recognition across the globe, but is also relevant for us at ADRA because we operate in these different spaces already. A big part of One Health focuses on the collaboration between different disciplines. And it shouldn't be thought of as just a health approach either, but rather full well-being um, and, and all that goes into it for people, for animals. And for the environment. So in order to truly operate in One Health fashion, collaboration across many sectors and disciplines need to take place and they need to have well-rounded approaches. I hope that kind of helped explain it a little bit.
0: It definitely does. So in light of all of that, what we're going to do today with this episode is a little different. We're going to talk to guests who come from a variety of backgrounds and interests related to One Health's three pillars, human, animal, and environmental well-being. We are so excited for all of the experience and viewpoints they bring to the discussion today. It will be a longer episode than normal, but we think it'll be worth your while. Let us start out by delving a little deeper into the public health, human well-being aspect of One Health. For this, we're going to add Shilpi Das, ADRA India's program manager for health, to the conversation. With over 15 years of experience in public health, a master of veterinary science, and previous involvements with disease surveillance and control, Shilpi brings a swath of experience to the table when it comes to One Health. Shilpi, welcome to our conversation on One Health explorations.
1: Shilpi, India is a one-health hotspot for emerging zoonotic diseases or diseases that can be transmitted from animals to humans. Why do you think this is? From your experience there in India, what do you think makes it such a strong hotspot location for these new animal-derived diseases in people to keep coming out, to keep emerging?
2: So I think, yeah, definitely Indian subcontinent is uh, the hotspot for not only emerging, but also re and neglected zoonotic diseases. And I think one of the reasons maybe uh, because India has one of the large density of livestock population, uh, in fact, the largest, and uh, the poorly guarded animal-human interface makes it more vulnerable also. Um, the majority of these livestock are actually in small holdings and in informal settings and poor hygienic practices, uh, informing improper uh, farming practices, lack of awareness, Uh, diagnostic facilities, poor diagnostic facilities. Uh, I think all this makes India much more vulnerable. Uh, Moreover, with the changing environmental condition, demography and uh, socioeconomic factors also put India at risk of uh, epidemic of uh, emerging infections. Um, India uh, further has the challenge of not only uh, the uh, zoonotic disease, but also newly evolved zoonotic disease. That means that uh, it has been found years back in India, but uh, in a particular location, in a particular geography. But now uh, the occurrence uh, is more in other geography or is expanding to other geography or host of vector ranges uh, due to changing ecology. Like uh, if I say, for example, Brussels have been emerged from one state in Haryana, where earlier it was mostly found in Haryana, but now it is also found in Goa which is a coastal area and uh, no dairy rearing is there, but brucellosis has been found in Goa also. Similarly, uh, Japanese encephalitis, uh, it was found in the southern state of Tamil Nadu, but now it is also prevalent in Uttar Pradesh, in UP. Uh, Leptospirosis, for example, uh, it was always prone to the area of Maharashtra, Mumbai, but now it is seen in Punjab. So I think these are some of the example uh, and diseases which have gone beyond their geography, and that is what is a bit complex here. And I think extension of these zoonotic disease to non-endemic areas uh, has increased the complexity and uh, the chances of more occurrence.
1: Um, I have a quick follow-up question. You, you mentioned part of it has to do with poorly guarded animal-human interaction. Can you speak a little bit more about that? What do you mean by that?
2: Yeah, so poorly guarded, more uh, human-animal interaction is, uh, you will find, you visit any village in India, and you will find that um, the cattles are reared, are kept inside the houses also, where the children are uh, playing, uh, where they are sleeping so there is no separate boundary for animals or human that's what i've meant to say like for piggery farming also if you go to assam uh, there are certain tribes which rears pig just below the like uh, the house so uh, there is such high chance of transmission of uh, diseases because pig is itself a host of uh, so many diseases and uh, the The children play with the pig, they stay there, Uh, they get a ride on the pig. So there are such close interaction happening uh, that uh, there is high chances of uh, transmission of zoonotic diseases between these two.
1: So I guess my next question then is, what do you think is needed to mitigate this kind of disease transmission in a place like India where you are? You you mentioned um, hygiene, you mentioned livestock practices, but what else, uh, what, do you, what do you think is needed and what do you see as ADRA's role in these kinds of activities?
2: Emily, I think that uh, One Health collaboration uh, between the veterinary sector, the public health practitioners, the policymakers, or uh, in short, if I say intersectoral coordination, Uh, should result in a more efficient and effective joint approach actually to the diagnosis and control of zoonosis. Even though it is there, but uh, definitely more in-depth study and more in-depth participation should be there for this intersectoral coordination. Uh, Currently, there are inadequate efforts for One Health and uh, with the emergence and re-emergence of pathogen in India, uh, there is definitely an immediate need for strengthening the One Health programs. Um, increasing burden of zoonosis on public health in India can be prevented, I think, only by periodic surveillance, pre-assessment or forecasting of zoonotic disease and uh, capacity building of both uh, the, um, both sides, the community side as well as the practitioner side or the government side who are giving services to the community. I think both ways we have to really strengthen ourselves. I'll just give you an example poor research is one such thing. Like uh, if you see uh, rabies death in India, uh, you will see the record, it is only 20,000 deaths per year. And this record, I've been seeing this record since last almost 10 years. Like uh, in nine, 2020 or 2000, I saw that record and I think it is 2021, the number hasn't changed. So you can really understand uh, where what I meant because there is no research, there is no um, surveillance system uh, which sees what exact death are there, Uh, how many uh, zoonotic diseases are happening. So these are some of the challenges which I see uh, has to be, or the gaps which which has to be definitely fulfilled. Um, Regarding your next part of the question, ADRA's involvement, definitely I can see ADRA can be effectively be part of the role. Uh, Since ADRA's uh, strength is community mobilization and awareness, especially ADRA India has its own strength in community mobilization. And so teaching, training and awareness program for farmers or the community uh, can be undertaken, uh, which can result in improving the disease control in animals and reduce public health risk of zoonosis. Uh, Also ADRA can work with the government to strengthen the intersectoral coordination mechanism. I think with that uh, partnership, um, we have a lot of things to do. A lot of partnership is required. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of opportunities also.
1: You know, Adra is so strong when it comes to community mobilization. We we have a real strength there. So I definitely think you're you're absolutely right. Um, and working with government, yeah, that's that's a great um, great recommendation as well. Shelby, this this brings us to the end of our questions for you. But I just I want to know if is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners today?
2: Just like to reiterate that intersectoral coordination, research, and a practical approach of One Health is required to avoid emergence or re-emergence of zoonotic diseases.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. And good luck with the, the rest of your work that you continue to do there in India. Thank you, Emily. What a great start to our conversation on One Health. Um, Already we've gotten a really interesting perspective on how public health or human health can be impacted through our connections with the environment and with animals.
0: It's a great segue into our next conversation with Davidson, the Senior Advisor for Agriculture and Economic Development at Adra International. Davidson has an academic and professional background in both animal science and agribusiness, and he brings knowledge and expertise from the animal and larger agriculture sector to the conversation. Davidson, welcome.
1: Davidson, part of your job at ADRA is to work on projects with agriculture or some kind of agriculture component. Uh, From your experience, can you tell us how maintaining healthy livestock and crops impacts the well-being of households and communities?
3: Yeah. Um, I guess I can start off by saying that, especially for livestock, because it's more my my background, it's not an uncommon phrase to say a healthy animal or a happy animal is a healthy animal. They just tend to be a lot more productive. Farmers can be somewhat conservative at times. Um, but I think it's safe to say that many of them can tell you if you have animals that are chronically uncomfortable or stressed, they tend to be less productive. If you think of it kind of like ourselves, if you're stressed or under some sort of pressure, you may not eat as much. Um, you may develop, uh, make it tense, have, um, Muscle pains, this kind of thing, if you're under stress and constantly tensing, that has direct impact on things like growth and quality of the products. So keeping animals happy or comfortable, I guess is perhaps the better word, uh, then that has some very direct implications for, for the quality of livestock. There's actually um, for swine, there's uh, something called PSE. And it sounds not very palatable, but uh, I believe it's pale, soft, and exudative. Um, it, but it's when the animals are slaughtered when they have big adrenaline rushes, and that tends to affect the the quality of the meat and it gives it a, a it taints it, so to speak. For plants, I guess that, that's not quite my background, but you could say that plants tend to respond to just the right conditions. You overwater them, um, over fertilize them, of which is somewhat subjective. They may not produce the the quality that one is looking for. Uh, Examples being such as wine production uh, or grapes. If it's rained too much, the sugar content of the grapes tends to decrease. and They may look just fine, but they may not be quite what the uh, the vineyards are looking for. Most crops, in general, you if you go especially to some of the western grocery stores where you have the uh, the large large scale produced um, vegetables, tomatoes is a wonderful example. You typically in in uh, a lot of grocery stores, the tomatoes, in a lot of groceries are picked green, so picked prematurely, which can't imagine that makes the plant very happy. Uh, they tend to be uh, fairly highly fertilized. So they grow fairly quickly and irrigated so that they grow maximally. The caveat is if you try some of those tomatoes and then compare them to some others, they good. The taste is going to be very different. And for me, that it's kind of like, you've done everything to make it grow fast and big kind of like steroids in a bodybuilder, but in the long run, it's just not good for the plant health or the the product. The tomato is going to taste watery and not nearly as flavorful. But it grew awfully big and awfully fast. The bodybuilder also grew big and fast, and then has all sorts of health uh, issues related to the overuse of steroids or something later on. For larger scale impacts, such as the well-being of households and communities, doing things such as mimicking natural systems, and that's really quite controversial because modern farming hasn't quite figured out how to mimic natural systems and then be able to harvest at scale. But let's say mimicking natural systems like planned intercropping, um, this can improve the variety of foods available uh, and allowing plants to grow normally that helps the communities and the households, those healthier plants that are grown more closer to how they would grow in the wild, not exactly. Going back to the bodybuilder example, they're, they're probably better quality fruits and vegetables um, nutrition-wise, and it, if you do things such as intercropping, which by default means you're gonna use two different types of plants at least, you get uh, more variety. That that benefits households and communities.
1: I really like what you said at the very beginning. Um, a happy animal is a healthy animal. And it, it sounds like that could sort of be translated into the plants as well. A happy plant is a healthy plant. And, you know, as you're saying, the the happier ones probably have more nutrition and, and all of that. I That's, that's really interesting. Um, going back to the the animal, the livestock, because that's more your focus. If healthy animals um, are able to be more productive and provide, you know, maybe they're they're healthier to be um, better work animals, or they provide better yields for milk or meat or things like that, um, which could in turn lead to healthier people. <laughs> Um, So if these healthier animals lead to healthy people, from your perspective, who do we need to include at the table to ensure that animal health is considered when we plan projects that serve the most vulnerable? Um, So say if we're doing a project that's not specifically focused on livestock, such as like wash or um, a disaster response project, something like that, not necessarily focused on livestock. What needs to happen for us to integrate sectors better and be more inclusive of the animal sector um, in these kinds of projects so as to have more of a well-rounded approach to serving vulnerable communities? I know that was a mouthful.
3: <laughs> that, that's fine, that's fine. and it's <laughs> it's a really hard nut to crack um, especially in financially strained situations. Um, <laughs> be it, for- financially strained donors or the beneficiaries we serve? The easy answer would be uh, the donor uh, as doing what they might view as additional activities would probably be fine so long as they didn't have to pay for it. And we still got everything else done to the level they're expecting. I I personally don't think it's quite that simplistic, um, but I do definitely believe the donor uh, needs to be at the table, to say the least. Um, I I think, and this is me bringing in behavior, because just over the past 20 plus years, it's become apparent to me that behavior is really, really important in our work. Um, But I, I think a really big shift in behavior is needed, and that would be at all levels. Uh, The donor, ADRA, or the organization, implementing organizations and the beneficiaries. The the donor may not be willing to pay for it. Uh, ADRA offices might not think it's needed or want to do the additional work. Um, And beneficiaries almost certainly have their own ideas about raising livestock that might not necessarily be the best for animal health. And dealing with three levels, all of which are unconvinced, Really makes it quite difficult. I don't, it's not a great answer. I, I, I can give you an example, um, and I will I will uh, tooth the horn of wash, so to speak. Um, uh, a, a good example I saw of incorporating in livestock into, say, this wash example with minimal additional funding and work, uh, it, it actually killed multiple birds with one stone so to speak i i've i've seen wash uh water points where um, livestock watering is incorporated into the water points uh the water is diverted away from where the people are collecting the water but it's diverted to troughs um so the animals shepherds can bring their animals if Shepherding is your livelihood, and you've got to get your animals watered. It doesn't matter if some NGO puts up a fence around um, a watering point, you're going to tear it down to ensure your your animals are watered. Remember in Azerbaijan, there was a above ground water pipe uh, that would go whip to uh, one of the villages, and we were driving by, and there was probably, it looked like a sprinkler. Um, and shepherds would just come in with pickaxes and popped holes in those things so their animals could uh, drink. Uh, didn't help the village very much. Probably shot the shepherds shot themselves in the foot because they lived in those villages but uh, human nature is a funny thing. The the, the point is here the the adra wash points of that one perhaps protect put a small fence around where the people Collect water and then diverting water to a trough farther away is a great example of change of behavior by um, designing the environment, so to speak. And I mean the the operating environment, not not uh, climate and land and all that. It, I'm pretty sure it was done for sanitation purposes. I.e., it's not necessarily sanitary to be collecting water from the same place that sheep are. Uh, taking a swig out of but it we we change the behavior by changing the design of the watering point um you make it harder for the shepherds to water their animals in the same place that people uh water which okay that makes it harder but if you don't give them an easier alternative they may tear the fence down anyway but you divert the water away and you make it Easy, you give them an easier alternative, and so that's what they choose by default. That that's was, to me, a, stuck out as a great example of incorporating behavior and positive behaviors, not by training, not by cajoling or educating, but just by designing. And I think, and that was something that didn't necessarily take a lot of water, but you improved animal health, you improved human health, and... I would argue that at least the design part of keeping the animals separate, I can't speak to the pumps and such, but that part was also probably sustainable. There's really no motivation for shepherds to come in and start tearing down the fences or anything as long as their livestock can drink. And it's, as I mentioned, fairly cost effective. I don't think it would cost that much extra to divert, to add a trough and divert, use a small pipe to divert it to the trough that doesn't answer the convincing the, um, the donors really, it, it convinces the beneficiaries by design, but not, um, showing them the right thing or anything like that, but it, it does require some motivation. Now for Audra's case, I'm assuming the motivation was the donor saying it needs to be sanitary, but we actually achieved multiple things there. Yeah. Yeah. And you
1: know, what you just said about how it, the initial purpose of that activity was probably for sanitation purposes or hygiene purposes, um, but it still achieves multiple objectives. Um, that's, I mean, that's such a, that's what One Health is all about, right? You know, what we're talking about here. And that's, that's a great example. Um, I love that you shared that. And it's, it's just making me think of animals really, when you look at it, need the same things that we do. Um, they need f- proper food and water, nutrition, uh, you know all of these shelter, all of these things and how how can we tag on that that animal component to what we're already doing such as this this uh, example you gave I'm just thinking you know with food assistance how how can we tag on um, that how can we tag on animals to that or uh, health projects, uh, you know home visits for families you know do we add on something there with with an animal focus. Yeah, just all these kinds of things popping into my head.
3: It requires a a very different way of thinking. Um, and Mm -hmm. I'm I'm afraid in development practitioners are also kind of like farmers, (laughs) kind of um, conservative, or at least they they, they have a way of doing things and deviating from the norm is is inconvenient. and it's it's not it really isn't easy. I mean, thinking up the these kinds of all other ways to kind of combine multiple benefits or to achieve multiple benefits from doing um, one or two things, um, it's it's not easy. Um, and I think it requires very careful design and and testing and, and redesign and, and these kinds of things. But um, I do think it's possible. Um, I if there is a um, market systems component. uh, I I think that makes some aspects of it a little bit easier as it it kind of addresses the motivation behavior part. But uh, even even when it's not, I think um, it can be addressed, but it does require a shift in. Yeah.
1: Could could you speak on the market systems component and what, what exactly you mean by
3: that? This actually occurred to me fairly like after Years after I gotten into market systems development, in that when I started it, it, it just made sense to me that I think of myself as a relatively nice guy of stuff. But I, you know, I only do things for free for so long. And I think that can be said of most of us. There needs to be a, a motivation built in. And uh, market systems development, a lot of it tends to incorporate various motivations. Most often, profit um, in, into work. The the trick is to come up with something that is beneficial, rather than some you know, just purely extractive, capitalistic kind of thing. I believe in capitalism, but I think it needs a collar, so to speak. But the motivation is built into it. The profit, and it's not always about profit. But I I, I think that that figure is pretty large. That tends, to, whether it is trying to work with a pharmacy to identify another revenue stream, like say maybe baby formula, as opposed to just selling aspirin, or if it is a grocery, um, trying to get them to sell maybe more fruits or eggs or something like that, um, telling them it's the right thing doesn't really help their bottom line. It may not even be clear how, how to do it, but if you can convince them that we help you with their refrigerator, then you can sell things and extend the life of the products that you're selling. Uh, There's a, there's a bit, there's a motivation there. Um, They, they can extend the life of the products. They don't have things go bad as quickly. um, And people are more likely to buy stuff that's in good condition rather than bad condition. In market systems development, um, the profit part is actually not the part that's touted um, the part that the systems part, and markets really are systems in, in and of themselves, but the identifying what's not working to the benefit of our target group is, um, is kind of the center of it. And I think a side benefit is it tends to have fairly natural incentives built in. Somebody, especially if income is very low, being able to have more income or it's like I said. It's not always about money. It could be improved efficiency. The um, I, think it's, uh, I can't remember the economist's name. But you, you'll hear often hear me say, if you want somebody to do it, make it easier. That's not original. I, I took it from uh, somebody. Uh, making something more efficient is quite often making it easier. So instead of, if you want to bring in more chickens into a village or make Make it easier for people to to raise chickens. Um, Quite often you'll hear about um, selling chicks. Well, if somebody's bringing them in on a box by hand or something like that, that they're only going to be able to do so much. If they have a bike with, you know, they're able to carry two or three boxes on there, then they can carry some more. If they have a bike with some boxes that are adapted for carrying chicks to reduce mortality rates, then they can carry even more. Um, and the motivation there, that makes it a lot easier than carrying, say, three boxes by hand, wherever. Profit may also figure in reducing mortality rates, but it sometimes it is just about making it easier to do. Um, the wash example that I gave earlier, the shepherds would probably default to water troughs rather than trying to get to the where people collect water because by design we've made it easier
1: yeah these are all really interesting things to to think about and mull over um and this just goes to show you know i animal health is one part of um the one health concept obviously but economics and market systems are also much um, they're also really involved and and central to it as well. Um, this is all really great and interesting. I do want to ask you one more thing. Um, do you do you have any last thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners? Any any key takeaways that you would like to leave with them?
3: Yeah, it just occurred to me. One health is kind of a systemic development. Um, it's it's a web of, to my understanding, it, it in part deals with how. Animal health can affect human health and plant health, and it's an environmental health. Um, All these things are somewhat connected, which is just another way of saying it's a system. So I'm unfortunately a firm believer in systems development. And I only say unfortunately because it's very difficult. (laughs) But I I do think a lot of the work we do is more more connected than we think. Another thought, uh, behavior best laid plans of mice and men. Um, it doesn't amount to much if you can't get people to follow them. Yeah, my for agriculture, always got to give it props. Uh, agriculture is great because starvation is not fun.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, well, thank you for your thoughts and thank you for coming on and being willing to to speak with us. This has been really great and I really love what you said at the very end. A lot of the work we do is more connected than we think. And what you've shared with us today really really shows that. So uh, thank you for coming on. And um, we just really appreciate your time.
3: Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate uh, the opportunity.
1: What a great conversation that was. Um, Just like Shilpi highlighted in our first interview about intersectoral coordination being so important, Davidson likewise emphasized how things are much more connected than we think and that we can really make use of the circumstances and approaches we already have to develop more systems type approaches to the work that we do.
0: That's definitely right, Emily. And one part of that systems approach that brings everything together is the environment. To discuss this part of the One Health model, we reached out to Anna Krikun, the Regional Coordinator for Southeast Asia and the Pacific at ADRA Germany. Anna has demonstrated a key interest in protecting the environment and has been instrumental in the development and rollout of the ADRA Network's carbon neutral strategy to help reduce ADRA's carbon footprint to mitigate the effects of climate change. Anna, we're so happy to have you with us.
1: The first question we have for you, Anna, is without getting too technical, can you tell us a little bit about ADRA's carbon neutral strategy and what inspired it?
4: Uh, yeah, the carbon neutral strategy. <laughs> we didn't want it to be too technical. We rather wanted it to be quite accessible for all the all other offices. The reason that, that we decided to to draft it and why we have it at all is to create some some simple steps for our network. How we can take responsibility of our own emission or of our own impact on the environment and uh, yeah, on our planet, let's say. So we we saw that uh, the climate change is escalating pretty hard. For the comparison, uh, our planetary border right now for the uh, atmospheric carbon carbon, uh, dioxide concentration in parts per million is 350. And we are now at 400 and it is rising. So we overstep our planetary border. So we wanted to to do what we can. So we created this guide for ADRA, uh, and the guide consists of two simple steps. Uh, the first one is to create awareness and take a decision on what is it, the climate change, what we want to do to mitigate it, and uh, are they responsible at all at ADRA, as ADRA and as individuals as well. The, uh, the second step is to calculate our own footprint, uh, where it lies. Uh, is it uh, logistic perhaps, or maybe some kind of type of waste? our air flights uh, to, to understand where our ma- major uh, emission point lies and then as a third step one would create the action plan to actually reduce these emission sources in our offices and perhaps in our projects uh, and as a four steps uh, one would see how much emissions has left after all of our efforts and one could see how one could bring them to zero to to balance them through our projects to maybe some reforestation activities or some others, or perhaps to purchase of the carbon credits. Yeah, so the full point of the strategy to be pretty accessible <laughs> for everybody and to uh, take responsibility in, in our hands, more or less.
1: Mm, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm curious about the accessibility part, how is this being made accessible to the ADRA network?
4: well uh you know we have this uh, we have this <laughs> document uh, the document and of course you still need to read it uh there are these four steps uh we also have uh, well awareness it's it, there are some steps there that you can take. What I find is more more technical part of the whole four steps is this calculator where you actually calculate your, your footprint. So we created a customized calculator for our other network, which we could use to, to see where the emissions lies. But uh, I also see that we need more trainings for, for this to introduce it, to make it more easier. So we're looking at some trainings. We're also developing now, and it's going now through the PDAC and EMAC, carbon reduction guide which is the <laughs> quite a long one but uh, one can just pick uh, the pieces which one need uh, to to get more information on how to do this how to reduce how to calculate what kind of activities what could do so it's more like um, you could say it, it's, a, it's a longer guide but you could pick up uh, pick out the ideas to make it more uh, to give a little bit more ideas but of course one would need to sit down and take a look at the document. Perhaps we also need to look at more accessible ways like a training packages for the offices and something else. I mean I'm not saying that the reading long document is the, is the best way to learn something. So there is a ways to improve, but there are tools and there are document visa clarifications. perhaps we also need to look at a better ways to to package it.
1: Yeah. So going back to the awareness part of it, um, you know, this podcast is part of what we do with this podcast is sort of raise awareness about certain issues. And that's certainly um, what this episode is about a little bit. So for our listeners who might not be as familiar with carbon emissions and this topic, this subtopic, I guess, um, could you explain to us just a little bit on What kind of things actually contribute to carbon emissions? And what kind of things would this customizable calculator actually calculate? Uh,
4: Well, there are quite a few different things that contribute to our emissions. There are, for example, uh, our land management, one of the very... I mean, if you're not looking at the office, but at at the planet as a whole, it's it's our land management... (laughs) Our land management uh, is, uh, especially with our monocultures in our mechanical uh, intervention into the soil cultivation, they uh, they make the soil uh, be less able to absorb uh, and sequestrate carbon, actually, and also the uh, the pollution as such a lo- loss of the biodiversity is also connected to to the to the to the lack of the carbon absorption by the by the plants because we're losing the diversity hence yeah we're losing all of this uh, the in, uh, oceans acidification also impacted. In our offices, if you're not looking at the planet as a whole, <laughs> what contributes to the climate change? Well, it's uh, in the thing that we're calculating a calculator is our logistic. I would say for ADRA, perhaps without uh, looking at the old uh, databases of our offices, I would estimate it is our logistics. It's uh, perhaps our flights and travels and uh, commute to work, commute to the projects, anything. Uh, also our procurement, we perhaps need to look at the ways how we procure and what we do in humanitarian settings and development settings. Do we hold the producers of the goods accountable? Or at least do we ask, you know, if if we cannot hold them accountable? At least if we look into this, into packaging, uh, a simple example for this, uh, for humanitarian action, we distribute uh, the little plastic bottles to every person of the 500 milliliters, thousands of them, are we creating pollution uh, through our our actions is it is it also do not do not harm when we are uh, when we are in the end creating more problem than a solution you know uh, there are different things but in a calculator measure for for example things like uh, logistics including the commute of the employees to work uh, the hotels uh, so our burden through the through the hotel stay through the waste management um uh, through the heating, through the electricity, so the the usual office uh, inputs that, that one has. If one wants to look in calculation into the projects, one would need to see what are the major activities that the project does, but I would say there, major emission factors are logistics, again, how you deliver things, and what are you delivering, how you package it, so your procurement, so it's a logistic and procurement, there will be major sources, perhaps. That's... That's a
1: lot of things from our our everyday lives and you know our our work lives that we don't even think about. Some of those things that you were mentioning, some really sobering things to think about. I think. So piggybacking on that a little bit, why are things like climate change mitigation and environmental protection? You know, you mentioned biodiversity and oceans and soil. You know, why Why are climate change mitigation and environmental protection necessary for ADRA to truly serve the most vulnerable?
4: I I like to mention at this point, uh, the concept which is called the donut economy, which is which introducing this connection between the people and environment, because often when uh, when you used to talk when i used to talk about the environment and the climate protection uh, i used to hear a lot but but we as other we, we help the the people <laughs> even not environmental organization perhaps we shouldn't be doing that so it's it's a separate things so, you know people vulnerable people and environment is a different things but in reality i see that they are very much connected uh, for example this donut concept which was uh, drafted in 2017 by uh, by one a scientist in a writer, uh, it introduces two circles. Uh, You can imagine how the donut looks like, you know, in the middle one, the whole of the donut is the all humanity needs. And uh, all humanity needs are very diverse, uh, food, water, uh, education, protection, and so on and so forth. And we need to meet these needs in order for us to satisfy the needs of people in order for us to to give the uh, light that people deserve to support the most vulnerable so we need to be able to mitigate them at the other side uh, on, on the outer circle of the donut outside one you know they are our planetary borders and uh, we have the ceilings with which we cannot step over for example like our climate change like as already said we are overstepping the uh, carbon dioxide um, border that our planet can carry in order to exist uh, another one uh, of them is, for example, biodiversity loss. Uh, our planetary border of the loss of the species per year, per million, is 10, at least 10, not more than 10. And we are now at 100 to 1,000 and it's still rising. So we are rapidly losing diversity of the different species and our planet cannot carry it and it cannot survive ultimately. Our land conver- conversion, uh loading of the soil with nitrogenous phosphorus for the... Uh, for the cultivation that that we're doing now is a soil, it's all uh, depleting resources of the planet. So we need to see how we can live in a certain balance so our planet doesn't cease to exist in a way and we can still survive on it. And at the same time, we need to satisfy our own needs. And it impacts the people who have less resources than anybody. For example, if you look at the the pollution, Uh, now uh, 24% of the urban population living in slums in the development countries. And in the slums, you will see the major pollution, the major factories that don't have any kind of uh, filter or the policies, they are all in these poor areas. For example, a good example of this is a New Delhi where the uh, the major pollution is exactly in the slum area. And the people who live in the slum, they are by definition most vulnerable. They cannot afford to live anywhere else. Or for example in Beijing, and so hence they are getting all these health issues uh, related things. Where people who are a little bit better off, they can afford the filters, uh, air filters, or the water filters, and, and they give living living there for example better life. Another example that I saw in in the projects uh, was in Vietnam, where I saw the most vulnerable people without documents or money living on the river delta of Mekong in the areas prone to flooding, where every year the flooding occurs. So they cannot live anywhere else because they don't have any resources and as most vulnerable people they are faced with this uh, over flooding and a need to flee every year and the over flooding is connected to the climate change to the shifting patterns uh, another example i saw for example in fiji uh, where people use quite a lot of chemical fertilizer without actually being able even to read the instruction without any kind of protection uh, and the, the health suffers as a result of, of this. Of the farmers who plant, and of the people who who consume, and the people who have who are a little bit uh, have a little bit more resources that can perhaps afford better food, better housing, uh, better water purification, air purification systems. So the more we uh, we neglect our environment, the more we neglect the people who cannot afford anything better.
1: Yeah, and you gave a lot of real examples of that those connections that you're talking about. From your experience, when you bring up these connections, you know, how the more we neglect our environment, the more it impacts the most vulnerable. When you bring this up to to other people, whether it be ADRA or, you know, people external from ADRA, are they more receptive to the message of climate change mitigation and environmental protection then when you bring up those connections, or is it still um, a bit difficult to um, convince them, <laughs> if, if you want to call it that?
4: Well, well I, I think as long as you're able to connect people need and a planet, it, it gets much better <laughs> uh, because th- then, then people see that uh, it, it is for people. It is not just for something that, uh, I don't know, maybe we will, uh, yeah, yeah. Perhaps doesn't have impact on us, uh, and that's why I, I think we as Adra need to focus on both on mitigation. What what I just talked about about the uh, the reducing our impact uh, through the different areas through the uh, reduction of the. Uh, carbon dioxide and so on and through adaptation to basically to learn to live in these conditions of this planet and supporting the most vulnerable in that and if you w- work uh, in a, a overlapping path between adaptation and mitigation i think that's the sweet spot that other uh organizations should hit because then uh then what one could see the impact on the people because adaptation for example is to uh is to plant the way that uh, plants can grow in a changing climate, they can be resilient, At the same time, the soil is not, uh, the resources of the soil are not depleted and it it is healthy. So hence, you're getting more harvest. So hence, you're getting more income. You're getting better livelihoods. Uh, And uh, yeah, that's where the livelihoods of people improved. There is a lot more appreciation to the (laughs) environmental issue. And I, I would always suggest the offices, if they implement something like this, to look at both components. The pure environmental one and incentive one are connected to the livelihoods of people because uh, we are there to satisfy both needs. And in fact, ADRA is not a pure environmental organization. So I see the the definite need for the justice, for this environmental justice, environmental protection, and the livelihoods. Um, We are working now on the uh, climate change uh, framework with uh, with a, with a sm- small group of people on the Adra level, and we are looking at three major aspects uh, we want to focus in this uh, spot where the adaptation and mitigation cross. The first one of them is the protecting and restoring ecosystems. That's what I said about incentives. It's about uh, increased harvest, increased income. And uh, we could work with different approaches such as natural-based solution, regenerative agriculture, organic agriculture, and so on and so forth. So it's adaptation. Another one is the is the reduction of greenhouse gas emission through the mitigation activities in our projects in our offices how we package things how we drive or don't drive how we organize of our project whom we do take accountable for production that we buy for our projects so and also our personal commitment to reduce the emissions and the third one is to improve the resilience of the communities we work with and resilience is a complex subject, it is not just a risk reduction, it is is more of a resilience to all the different aspects of life, education, economic environment, political governance, health. So it's a little bit, uh, (laughs) it's a, I would say it's an approach that combines both people and their needs and the environment and the needs of the planet. It's necessary to have both, then you can convince people a little bit easier. Yeah,
1: absolutely, and that goes along so well with the entire theme of this episode. You know, that's what One Health is. It it focuses on you can't have these these separate sectors. You know, for our cases here, you know, the 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 human well being sector, if you want to call it, and then the environment. You, it's got to go together. I'm I'm so excited to hear about this climate change framework that you're talking about, and what you said that it's this kind of work is for people doing this kind of work after doing this kind of work is really it it will help us meet our our purpose, which is, you know, to serve so all may live as God intended. So I'm, I'm so excited to hear about that. Um, I'm looking forward to learning more about it. But Unfortunately, this is all the time we have to speak with you. This was, this has been so wonderful to hear about what you've been working on with um, the carbon neutral strategy and and sharing about um, all of these different things. Is there, as as we wrap up this part of our episode, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners today?
4: Well, <laughs> I don't know a, a lot and uh, I think one just needs to be curious. If uh, I would say if the offices or the listeners are interested in this topic, I uh, my personal advice is just to read about it and look how one can contribute because one does not need to be perfect or one does not need to be uh, environmental activist 24 seven or environmental NGO to do change. The, the change starts with the small steps and even a small offices and a small project can, can make a change. So I would always say it is better to do a little bit of something than nothing in this case. So we should, uh, if we cannot go do all in once, to do stepwise wise, it is still a good way.
1: Mm, I love that. And where can people go to find out more, uh, to find these kinds of resources?
4: Well, for the climate uh, neutral strategy, we can go on the Inet into the uh, RTLL, uh, into the documents Uh, for the uh, carbon reduction guide is going now through the PDAC and uh, we are going to release it uh, in the next couple of weeks to the network and we also will put it at the same place, RTLL, the documents. Also, in RTLL documents, you will find some webinars on the topics. Uh, we released our resilience policy, which is at the same place there. There are some webinars as well. And the resilience policy is. Um, is a complex to- topic uh, with uh, components about adaptation, mitigation, climate change, and environments as well. So, yeah, you can go on the net uh, and uh, take a look. Also, I would suggest uh, reading perhaps uh, the Donut Economy book, which is not a Adra written book, but you, you can find it, uh, Google it up. Brendan from Adra Aro always recommend this book, uh, Draw Down. It's also quite interesting that I read now, uh, perhaps something interesting to look at.
1: Well, Anna, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really wonderful. And I'm sure that we will have more opportunities later down the road to chat again. Thank you so much. Thank
5: you guys, bye-bye.
1: You can really tell how passionate Anna is just from hearing her speak on this topic. And I know that some of the resources she mentioned will really come in handy for ADRA as we continue to establish our role in this space. We can share links to those in the show notes.
0: For our last segment, we've approached Melissa Whitman, one of ADRA International's former health interns who is currently pursuing a Master of Public Health from Loma Linda University. She will give us her insights on One Health from a student perspective and how it might play a part in the careers of young professionals who are entering or soon to enter the workforce. Hi Melissa and welcome. <music>
1: Since you are a current student, Melissa, we are interested to know what sorts of One Health topics are currently being taught in your public health program.
5: So currently there, are, there aren't any um, specific concentrations for One Health or any electives um, in regards to One Health, but the staff, faculty and staff really like to seek out Um, input from current students and alumni. So I'm hoping in the future, um, there will be a One Health concentration and even electives for people that are interested in learning about One Health.
1: Are there any, um, when you're in your classes, is there any mention of One Health or planetary health or, um, you know, animal health, anything like Mm -hmm. that, that's even mentioned in your programs or it's not even talked about really?
5: Yeah. So very briefly at the beginning of or the start to my um, master's in public health program, they do offer, it's a requirement to take the core courses in public health. And in one of the discussions, it was very, very briefly touched upon on what One Health is and how One Health falls under the umbrella of public health. So that's kind of how um, I learned about One Health. And then I kind of just did my own um, research on finding a little bit more on what One Health is and the One Health approach.
1: Very interesting. So that leads me to my next question. Um, What do you think are the most important skills to hone in a young professional like yourself or a student like yourself, I should say, who aspires to make contributions to One Health, especially since... Not all public health programs, school programs, offer specific concentrations. What do you think is, is necessary for, for students like yourself?
5: So I would say one of the main skills to hone in on is collaboration. As you can see, One Health involves many components such as human health, animal health, and um, environmental health. So I would say to start off in the beginning... Of your career to start talking to your to your teachers, to other students that are in other concentrations, to join um, webinars. Hopefully, they'll be related to you know one health topics and to just expose yourself to a lot of the different areas that are within public health. Because you know, a single person or an organization, we can't alone solve the issues that fall under um, One Health. So it, it really just takes a lot of teamwork and like I said, collaboration. So it would just primarily be to start getting that exposure and and talking to a lot of different people and to start networking.
1: I, I love that. I love that. That's so core to One Health, that collaboration piece. Um, I'm curious to know if, you know, what are what are some of the opportunities that exist um, at your school, in your program that help you ex- become exposed to other areas of public health?
5: That's a very good question. Um, right now, because we, I, st- I began the program fully remote and have just done a lot of online courses, I have only briefly attended the campus so far once um, throughout the year. I do know that there are a lot of opportunities within the community um, to help out with just a variety of different projects. So I believe that once we are in person, hopefully coming up soon within this year, I'll be able to like look more into like what different clubs there are and just different activities that are going on on campus. So hopefully I will be able to, to find an area in One Health that's going on within the campus because I'm sure there are, you know, other faculty and staff that are and students that are interested in this area. So it's kind of just like searching and figuring that out.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, Melissa, you kind of left it at the right spot um, for us. There's interest. There's likely (laughs) um, (laughs) lots of interest from professors and other students in different areas of One Health. And it's, it's really just about, you know, getting that collaboration going and seeing where that takes you. And that takes the rest of us in this industry. So thank you, Melissa, for this chance to speak. We wish you all the best in your program ahead. All right. Thank you.
0: What a great way to end the conversation with our guests, just as it's important to hear from professionals already working in this one health space. It's also important to be including the next generation at the table. So I'm glad we were able to hear from Melissa.
1: Definitely. I absolutely agree. And I think what you've said is really key. We need to include all sorts of different voices at the table when it comes to One Health because One Health impacts us all. Even if we're too young for the workforce, or if we don't specifically work in one of the three main sectors that define One Health, we're still all impacted and we all have a role to play.
0: Emily, as we wrap up this episode, what are some key takeaways that come to mind for you from all of the amazing conversations that we just had?
1: Well, one thing that came out really strongly was the fact that even in talking with these different people who have different skill sets and expertise and are coming at the topic from different perspectives, it's so incredibly clear that the well-being of people is linked to that of the animals and environment around us. We don't need to be looking at it from the same angle to see that. Um, It's it's clear that we don't live in silos. (laughs) So why do we seek to operate programs in that way? Yes, we may have programs that are multi-sectoral, but this is more than being multi-sectoral. It really needs to be transdisciplinary to the point where sectors are blending so much that you can't even tell where to draw distinctive lines between them. And something else that stood out to me, which is very real, is something Davidson shared about the financial constraints of integrating sectors. Sometimes donors may not necessarily be against the idea, but if it doesn't fall in specifically with their protocols or guidelines or broader strategies and goals, they likely won't want to fund those things. So this is a real area where we can be involved in advocating to donors, as well as with other organizations like ours that have similar donors. We need to be regularly talking and advocating for more blended One Health type approaches that benefit humans, animals, and environment all together instead of piecemeal, because that's what will really help us meet our goals sustainably and effectively in the end.
0: As a WASH person myself, I really loved hearing Davidson mention the example of how WASH water points are being designed with One Health in mind. I'm proud to say that this is something Adra is doing more of. They're termed multi-use water points. And in places like Gokwe in Zimbabwe, where livestock is such a big part of people's livelihoods, I can tell you that these services are being received very positively. There's even growing evidence that these multi-use water points are more sustainable. Nobody wants to see them dysfunctional for a long time because prolonged downtimes also affect the economic activities attached to them. I think that's a great example of more integrated planning to address the needs of people, the needs of animals, and the needs of the environment.
1: Yes, exactly. That's a a great example. Another thing I wanted to point out was something Anna brought up. As climate change is really coming into global focus with COP26 and everything, it's certainly in prime view and it is clear we need to be doing everything we can right now, no matter how small. Anna reminded us that we seek to do no harm, but are we really doing no harm with how we operate? She mentioned flights, commutes to work, and procurement, even down to whether or not we're providing plastic water bottles as part of a disaster response. It may be good in the moment, but will it actually result down the line in more harm? These are questions we as an agency need to consider and really mull over so that we are really doing right by the environment because, as Anna reminded us, neglecting the environment in these ways really means that we're neglecting the most vulnerable people that we claim to serve. It's a very sobering thought, uh, in my opinion, but, but a good one. This is opportunity for us to take stock of what we're doing and improve our practices to make them greener and healthier for all life on this planet.
0: I really loved that conversation with Anna. You know, we're so busy with our everyday tasks, reports, proposals, day-to-day operations, and it can sometimes feel like dwelling too much on issues like the environment would take away from us dealing with more urgent and visible threats like hunger and disease but as anna was talking she really makes it clear that it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game incorporating environmental issues into our day-to-day work also addresses these other threats and preserving the health of the environment presents some very real benefits for some of the most vulnerable people we serve assuming that we or most humanitarian workers are driven by a desire to see the lives of the most vulnerable improved. I think this is a real big motivation for us to start incorporating One Health into our work.
1: Yes, absolutely, I fully agree with you. Um, The last thing I wanted to bring up is that it's clear One Health isn't quite on everyone's radar yet. Um, We can see that in our interview with our intern, Melissa, while it was briefly mentioned in her classes, it isn't front and center as a major focus in her program yet, but there are many schools that already offer concentrations and full majors and even doctorates in One Health, and that number of schools is growing very, very rapidly. And this is really important to note for ADRA because this means that the incoming generation, the, in, the incoming workforce that will soon be joining our industry will have One Health perspectives built into their skill sets. So to make us relevant as an agency, we need to pay attention to this trend so that we can attract the brightest minds of the incoming generation and be keen to the new approaches they've been taught. It's very easy for us to want to stay operating in the same way we've been because that's what we're comfortable with. But if we want to grow and to stay relevant, we need to change along with those trends.
0: I couldn't agree more, Emily. Well, this has been a lengthy episode, but we hope those of you who are listening and who have stuck around until the end have gained some great takeaways for yourselves. We've only scratched the surface of this one Health topic, so maybe we'll do another episode in the future.
1: That sounds like a plan.
0: If you would like to learn more about One Health or other topics regarding health, nutrition, and WASH, feel free to contact the Health Technical Learning Lab at healthtll.adra.org. That's healthtll.adra.org. To listen to other episodes of the HTLL podcast, please find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Thanks for listening and do join us next time for another exciting episode of the HTLL Podcast.